0: This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men In Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men In Blazers pod special. Our guest today, one of the people behind What Now? After certain recent events in Trinidad and Tobago, is what I hope will be a much-needed, positive American football story. Indeed, it might just be the feel-good story of the year that we can all learn from. The rise and rise of Atlanta United FC. Yes, it's the tale of an expansion team that made the MLS playoffs in their very first year of existence, thanks to the savvy assembling of an explosive, entertaining young squad and the recruitment of a former Barcelona and Argentine national team coach. But the narrative runs far deeper than that. This is really a story about an expansion team that by definition should barely be scoring, never mind winning games, taking root in Atlanta, part of our nation long considered to be arid land for football, a region in which people proclaimed, soccer could never grow. But a hand-picked back office built an emotionally intelligent strategy to develop Exna helo a massive, delirious, uniquely empowered fan base, recruit a peerless management team, and then set about the alchemy of squad building, defying well-defined MLS truisms to unearth young South American jewels that are now coveted across Europe, as are the crowd sizes they've drawn to their brand new spanking home. In September, the Five Stripes set MLS's all-time attendance record hosting more than 70,000 fans, 70,000 fans at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, a record they've gone on to break since then. So we welcome to the pod for the taping of a show that could be called How to Get Ahead in MLS Without Really Trying. The president of Atlanta United FC, the most successful expansion team in MLS history, bar the 1998 Chicago Fire, a man whose story... Starts a long way away from Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Hello in the panic room to the one and only Mr. Darren Eales. Hi there, Rog. Good to be here. Oh, Darren, it's remarkable to be with you. I mean, you can hear from that golden tone. Darren, you've got a southern accent, but it's southern English. You were born in Chelmsford. That's right. A London commuter suburb. I'm sure you're all saying that to yourselves, dear listeners. You became an aspiring footballer at Cambridge United. That's right, yeah. You were Jack Harrison before Jack Harrison, though, because you came over to America on a soccer scholarship to the mighty West Virginia Mountaineers. Oh, Tell us about the joys of Morgantown. A coach came over and recruited me to West Virginia, and he actually it was the days before the
1: iPad and the projector he just showed me photos of Morgantown Stadium with 70,000
0: in the seats, and I was thinking, wow, that'd be cool. You took the field at that stadium How many fans were actually in it when you kicked the football? Probably in uh, peak about 200. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't quite what they uh, (laughs) sold me. But but that 70,000 number, it stuck with you. We'll get to that. But you once said about the experience in West Virginia, we were lucky to get 1,000 people to a game and the biggest cheer from the crowd came whenever the goalkeeper punted the ball high into the air. Kick it! That was the level of soccer sophistication you were dealing with. Somehow your love of soccer survived, Darren. But if I transported myself back in time, come into the locker room at West Virginia and told you, Darren Eels, Darren Eels, one day soccer is going to make it in America. You are going to have that 70,000 screaming for a team that you're involved in. W- would you have believed me in that time at that place? No, definitely not. And even
1: after West Virginia, I went to Brown for a few years and then I played when it was the old USL and I actually played not too far away from here for the New York Centaurs. And I was thinking about that today as I was flying in. I mean, those were the days when they were trying to Americanize soccer. So it was, how can we make it higher scoring? And God forbid we have a draw. You know, that just can't ever work in America. We had one where they took team fouls from basketball. So in one season I played, they called it the golden foul. When there were seven fouls in one half, then you got what they called a special shootout. And the shootout was everybody yeah. stood on the halfway line. Let's say I've got I'm on the team that wins it. I have a 10-yard start on the centre circle. Everyone else is lined up, except for the goalkeeper. And then the ref blows his whistle and it was live from that. So it's like Cowboys and Indians. I'd be running to go towards the goal. And that was
0: their clever idea on how they could sort of increase scoring. It was just the biggest joke. But I love what you experienced in that USL career with the Hampton Roads Mariners, the Hershey Wildcats. That's great. The only team named after a roller coaster. (laughs) And the New York centres before you headed back to England to become a lawyer. Oh, Darren, you worked your way into football through the law. You became in-house legal counsel at West Brom, then director of football administration for Tottenham Hotspur. You'd made the Premier League big time. So Darren Ailes, you're in your fifth season at Tottenham. That team, they're experiencing forward momentum. Dreams that they'd always hoped for are coming true. You're at the peak of the game. In the biggest league in the world. And then Atlanta owner. Arthur Blank finds you. What on earth did he whisper into your ear? I was actually at a game. America were playing Turkey
1: in the pre-World Cup warm-up game. And we were looking at DeAndre Edlin at the times. So we being Tottenham Hotspur. That's right, yeah. My time with Spurs. And it was interesting because I'd taken the train, the path train to the game. And it was amazing. It was filled with people wearing the America shirt, singing, chanting. For me, someone who hadn't really been back for a few years, it just amazed me how much there was that culture now of soccer. So straight away, I was like taken aback by the level of soccer sophistication there was now in America. And it was around that time I got a call from headhunters saying they were looking to put a president into a new team that's going to be starting in Atlanta. My wife's American as
0: well, so I thought, well, I'll at least have a chat. I'll go and see what they've got to say. What was it about what Arthur Blank said to you? More than just saying, you know, I'm going to take the meeting, going to keep my options open. That's very different than saying, yes, going to relocate, I'm going to leave the Premier League behind, I'm going to invest my energies in, a, at that time, an MLS pipe
1: dream. Arthur at the meeting had himself there, Rich McKay, who's the president of the Falcons, Penny, who's the president of his foundation, literally everyone that was important to his whole umbrella of businesses was at that meeting. So straight away, that sent a signal that this wasn't going to be a little brother to the Falcons. This was something that he was genuinely committed to. So that was the first thing for me, because I'd seen other ownerships in the league, having been on the other side of the fence at Tottenham doing deals. So it was really important, firstly, that this was going to be a project that the owner was going to be behind. Atlanta is a city. Although I'd spent some time in America, I had my view of Atlanta being this sort of town in the south, perhaps a bit backwards. And I was blown away even in that first weekend that I visited how cosmopolitan, how international it is, vibrant, growing, exciting city to be in. But you know, ultimately, you just don't get a chance to start something up from scratch anywhere else in the world of soccer. This is something that is unique to America. So the idea that I could take a team build it exactly in the identity that I wanted to, both on and off the field, was just something that you couldn't do at Tottenham. Tottenham, fantastic club, but it's been around 125 years. You're not going to change that history. You don't get a chance to do things from scratch. It was the
0: lure of the blank canvas. Yes. So you arrive in Atlanta two and a half years before your team are ever going to kick a ball. There's no players. There's no team name. There's no youth academy. Uh, do you even walk into like a completely empty office? Totally
1: clean desk? Yeah, it was funny. I was in Flowery Branch, which is where the Falcons are based, with a sign that just says MLS Atlanta 2017 President. And that
0: was it. On that first do you just open up the drawers of that desk and find a half-eaten sandwich and a mysterious blockbusters membership card that's been abandoned by some previous occupant. Is that That's essentially what the whole entirety of the operation was.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a funny. I think we did our first tweet from uh, the office and literally we had to put some files there just to make it look like <laughs> <laughs> I'd done some work because <laughs> it was just a totally empty office. It didn't really send the right message.
0: When you were there at the outset, there's so many, so many naysaying pundits who kept saying soccer in the South just would not work in Atlanta. Before Atlanta debuted this season, the city's soccer president, the Silverbacks, were challenged. The city's NHL team, the Thrashers, had boomed and burst and decamped to Winnipeg. Please be honest. Was any part of you feeling any kind of doubt?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the only negativity I really got was about that fact that Atlanta wasn't a sports city. So they pointed to the Thrashers, the NHL team that left and went up to Canada. They spoke about whether it's the Falcons, the Braves, the Hawks, Playing matches and finding that half the stadium's cheering the away team. And so that was certainly the factor at the back of my mind that this was going to be an issue.
0: Step one, building the fan base. Atlanta United, ultimately, spoiler alert, 30,000 season tickets sold before kickoff, which is second only in the league to Seattle. Bigger fan base than many Premier League teams in terms of season ticket sales. I want to discuss tactically how do you do this? Essentially, build an audience out of nothing. How did you analyze the competitive environment surrounding your sports-wise, first of all, in Atlanta, at its heart, a college sports town with that fickle pro sports fan base that we've talked about. They'll support a team only when it's hot.
1: So the team was announced in April 2014 before I joined. By the time I came on board, about 10,000 people had put down deposits for tickets. So there was straight away an initial... Surge of interest, number of factors, soccer growing in the country, a lot of hidden soccer interest in Atlanta, but also with Arthur Blank being the owner, I think there was already a credibility that this was a guy who'd shown his commitment to the city and was going to do things properly. But what our task was was how could we take that and grow it and nurture it into a bigger fan base? And the approach we took was try and create this club mentality, this feeling that you were part of this, don't use the word cult, secret club. You were starting it up, you were building it. And so what we did was anything we could to create moments where we could interact. So when I started, the first thing I did was, there was a Falcons game, I remember, on the Sunday, and we set up a meeting with our supporters group in a pub in Midtown afterwards, because it was also the MLS playoffs. So we did a meet and greet, there must've been like 300 fans turned up there, which was pretty impressive on day one. And so it was beer in hand talking to them. And I always remember it because Arthur suddenly showed up. Now, normally Arthur's diary is about six months in advance and he doesn't do anything unless it's been checked out by his security. But he turned up, beer in hand, and straight away the crowd started to sing Uncle Arthur, which was the nickname they gave him. And I remember that moment where I was like, mm, how is he going to take this? Is he going to like this or be offended? Luckily he smiled and liked it, so then that's become the nickname that our fans give him. But it's interesting, that connection that feeling that the club is owned by the fans. And we were able to create that in Atlanta by starting from scratch. And by everything we did was grassroots marketing. So we didn't do anything that was radio, TV, billboards. It was all around events, soccer events, grassroots events. The marketing book, we joked, would be pub crawl your way to success. I mean, literally, whether it was Liga MX games, whether it was the US national team, Premier League, anything that revolved around soccer that could create those moments of camaraderie and fandom. We try to be there and have MLS Atlanta presence and then Atlanta United. So anything
0: mildly football that's happening in the globe. Yeah. Darren Hills is doing a keg stand somewhere in the greater Atlanta region. Guinness must have just been oozing out of your (laughs) pores. How do you define your target audience? I mean, Atlanta's been one of the fastest growing cities in this country past 20 years. City of transplants, they call it, up to a third of the population born out of state. It's diverse millennial young what did market studies tell you about who your avid audience would be and should be clearly as a young diverse growing population atlanta
1: had some natural sort of advantages in terms of soccer i think what we did and what we tried to focus on and i think this is the advice i would give to any of the new teams coming in is we went fully after those that were committed so our view was we're not going to get that fence-sitting college football fan To come, it's pointless even trying. Let's just go after those guys and girls that have already shown a commitment, and use them as our ambassadors to recruit their friends. And I think what you've seen with Atlanta United is, as the months went on, and then once we actually had the matches, it's just been like a snowball rolling down a hill. People are bringing their friends who have heard about Atlanta United. They're coming to a game. They're experiencing this unbelievable atmosphere that is unlike any other sport they've been to, and then they're becoming converted. And that's what's creating this momentum. So you
0: focus on your base, your avids, yeah. again and again. You shored up that base. You were not shooting for the moon. You were looking for that deep emotional connect rather than the wide kind of scattershot. This ebullient fan base you've got, they share a stadium with Atlanta Falcons fans, NFL fans. And I know you've done market research. How is your audience carved out of the same Atlanta community different to the Atlanta Falcons fan base?
1: Interesting for me. I thought there'd be much more of a crossover between a Falcons fan and an Atlanta United fan with the same owner, same stadium. It's around a four to five percent crossover, so not that big. Four to five percent. Yeah, so very, very low in terms of George. Yeah. (laughs) For me, the best way to describe the difference was the food and beverage survey we did. So new stadium, we wanted to make sure we had food and beverage in the stadium that was what the people wanted so we asked what's your favorite restaurants burger coffee beers all those sort of things." pies yeah pies oh, we need to get pies in that's one thing we're missing we'll have to work on that one
0: oh, every th- team has an achilles heel Atlanta united <laughs> fcs is pies, pies.
1: <laughs> but we asked the questions we actually asked it to the falcons first there was one coffee so we have a hipster coffee chain called octane in atlanta and, and they knows. it well they were, Amazing. <laughs> you know, they were like fourth, and Starbucks was number one.
0: The Falcons fans, their number one chain, Starbucks. Starbucks,
1: number four, I think Octane was. I, and even then I said, look, I know if we ask our fans, it will be Octane. Because already from meeting the people, the demographic of our group, and sure enough, we did it, and Octane was number one, I think Starbucks might be number three. But the other one that was really interesting was Craft Beer. So we asked a question, is it essential to you, very important? For Falcons, essential or very important was around 30% for a United was about 80%. So, you know, our audience is a craft beer drinking audience as opposed to your more traditional Atlanta Falcons fan that would be a Bud, Bud Light. It's a younger, more international, more diverse group.
0: GFOP at pay no Mind. How does the Atlanta fan base compare and contrast to the English Premier League fan bases that you're used to?
1: If you look at the rest of the world, the theory has been that America's come late to the game they don't really have that soccer sophistication. I think that the fan base, and I'll use Atlanta as an example, is equal to many grounds that I went to, whether it was Champions League with Tottenham or in the Premier League itself. And I'll be honest with you, if I take Tottenham as my sort of background, the Tottenham audience, if you're a season ticket holder there, you've been holding on to that ticket for 30, 40 years. It's a really old crowd that's not got fresh blood in it. And I love the American audience because they're just all in. They're all in for soccer. They're doing the TIFOs, spending two weeks in a warehouse painting it. We just had seven games in 23 days, and our guys did a TIFO for each one. I mean, they've been working (laughs) overtime just to be that. So for me, the passion, the excitement in American soccer is one of the big things that's going to drive it forward, and I love it.
0: You said, and I love this when I read it, you said, in the early days I was selling sunshine a little bit, no stadium, no training ground, no team. When you're trying to sign players, the question you're always going to get from them is, who's going to be the coach? And all I could say was, and I'd sound a little bit like Trump, it's going to be a really good coach, the best coach, terrific. Mm -hmm. Step two, the coach. Selecting a leader the team will believe in. Early on, you were linked to a slew of characters. Some may be red herring, some throwing us off the trace. I'm sure there's some truth to a number of these. Atlanta native, former U.S. international 10 Columbus crew assistant Josh Wolfe, Roberto Martinez linked for a while, Adrian Heath, Siggy Schmidt. How close did he get to any of those guys? I'd gone
1: through a lot of in my time at West Brom and Tottenham Hotspur. Usually the approach there is you're in an emergency situation. And you've got to pick a coach pretty damn quick because you've either sacked someone or you're about to sack them. The difference with Atlanta United is that we had a time frame of two and a half years where... At any moment up until probably pre-season January 2017, we could hire a coach. So it's a little bit of a different scenario because probably what I was doing more than anything was talking to a lot of people, keeping a lot of people warm, but I didn't have to jump until I was absolutely sure that I got someone.
0: What were you looking for in
1: a leader? Firstly, it was style of play. So it had to be someone that played an attacking, attractive style of play. It also had to be someone that was prepared to play youth.
0: Tata Martino. Bloody hell, Tata, bloody Martino. It's extraordinary. We're kind of used to it now. It's just Tata. No biggie. It's just Tata in MLS. But as the great Atlanta sports writer and GFOP Doug Roberson has written, men who've managed Barcelona and Argentina, as Martino has done, they're not usually tied to teams in MLS, much less expansion teams. How did it first happen? Did he reach out to you or did you reach out to him?
1: he reached out I got a call saying Tata Martino was interested he just quit with Argentina and at that time I was getting a lot of calls whether it was players managers so my initial reaction was yeah no chance but I said I'd take the call so through a translator we'd set up a call and within sort of
0: when you dial this number and you're about to make this call are you, what's your emotions? Are you like, yeah, let's do this. Uh, it's going to be a good laugh. Or are you just like, I've got to make a good impression here. I've no, got to try and land this big fish that's just caught onto my line.
1: I expected it to be a total waste of time, to be honest. Or first question to be, I want 10 million a year before we even start talking. We had a chat for not very long. And
0: you, and you realize it was actually Karl Martino. <laughs> <on the line>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it was clear straight away that there was some genuine interest. And something that I'll always do is move as quick as you can if something like that came up. So literally that weekend, Carlos Bocanegra and I went
0: to Rosario. You're both on the flight looking at each other. Like, you both like, this is hilarious.
1: Yeah, although to be fair, so Maurizio Pochettino was the last manager I'd hired. Tata was the captain of New Old Boys when Maurizio made his debut. Once I'd had the chat with Tata, I rang Maurizio up, and straight away I had a sense that character-wise I knew that Tata was someone that would tick the boxes because Mauricio could vouch for him. Likewise, I think it goes the other way. Maurizio could talk to Tata and say, look, this is someone, Darren, that I've dealt with. So straight away, I think that initial bridge was already A bit of
0: trust established. And yeah. you go there, you sit down with Tata Martino, Carlos Boccanegra, and multiple plates of steak and pork. What the hell was he looking for? So Why did he reach out to you? Why did he want this job? Well, I think, look, for many of the reasons I spoke about,
1: How it attracted me. I think, you know, Tatar had had Barcelona followed by Argentina. You know, three years of every press conference being a question about Lionel Messi. You like his new haircut today. What do you think about the speeding ticket he got? He loves soccer. And I think for him, this was a chance for him to go back to what he loves. Out on the grass, coaching a team with his philosophy. And with a blank sheet of paper, he had a chance to set history and to set Atlanta United on a course that he could always look back and say with pride, that was my team that I started it up with. So it was the blank canvas and the lack of pressure. Tatar's up front about this. I think you could come here and try to establish your team without the trappings of you have to win every game or your family are getting eggs thrown at them in the supermarket. What was amazing when we met him was just how prepared he was. So he'd already looked at every single team in MLS and had thought about how his style of play would match up. So whether it was Columbus and their style compared to how the Red Bulls would press. I mean, this was the level he'd already gone through for this meeting. And <gasps> it was an amazing lunch because we started it at noon and we must have got kicked out at about 6.30. I mean, it was just salt and pepper shakers
0: going through various teams, talking through some of the players that we were He even had at. a plan to beat the Miami Fusion. <laughs> yeah, He'd gone that deep <laughs> with the deep cuts. But MLS is an arcane league. Big name foreign coaches are almost always undone. You know, allocation roster. What? DPs, Tam, Owen Coyle, Carlos Alberto Pereira, Aaron Winter, all come over here to great fanfare. How the heck did this Argentinian bloke who'd never been connected to American soccer, what is it about running a team in MLS that he's been able to get his head around so quickly that so many foreign managers don't?
1: I think there's a few things. Firstly, I mean, Tatar as a person was just an amazing culture fit for us. I mean, it's funny when I look back, I shook his hand. He's so much like Maurizio in terms of his warmth of personality that comes across just in a handshake.
0: And the, and, and me, I, at Tottenham, I have never met a man, I've said this on the show, who high-fives so many. Got, Maurizio has got the perfect cup of his hand, so every high-five makes the, the perfect noise with every employee, every player, every journalist even. It's an unbelievably outgoing charisma. So Tata has that same charisma. Yeah,
1: and it sounds crazy now to say it, but literally when we shook hands at the hotel before we had this six and a half hour meeting the first day and then we had another meeting the next day, I sort of knew in that handshake because... You'd already got the cult handshake. It was that warmth of personality that goes such a long way in terms of coaching. It's about the noughts and crosses, but it's also about man management. And Tata is... They're off the same coaching tree, him and Pochettino from the Bielsa sort of background. But they're very similar characters in that they can deal with players and tell them if they're not playing, why they're not playing. And the player will take it. There's some managers that hide from that. They don't want confrontation. He's just got ability to get his point across. To go back to that, foreign managers don't work. Why don't they work? Well, you look at the people that were chosen and you think, well, there's a flaw there or they shouldn't have done that. My perspective was it's no different from Europe. You bring a coach in, you have a squad of players and the coach coaches them. Albeit MLS has much more complicated rules. Tatar doesn't want to get involved in how we're going to use the TAM next year. We'll have the general chat about here are the players we've got, who are we looking for, who do you want? But he
0: trusts us to put the team together for him to coach. Step three, personnel, build in a squad. Now, there's two traditional ways when you launch an MLS team. You either bring in a big name, ageing legend, a Beckham, an Henri, a David Villa, or you lure a pillar of the US team, Michael Bradley, a mixed disk possibly a Bobby Warder, Fabian Johnson. You were linked to Wayne Rooney, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Andres Guardado. What made you not pursue either of those two routes? This was born from my time at Tottenham, having been the other side of the fence.
1: So we'd sold Clint Dempsey, Jermaine Defoe, some of the bigger players into MLS, Robbie Keane to LA Galaxy. But we'd also done, it. it's a player called Simon Dawkins and he was dear to my heart because when I first started at Tottenham Hotspur, Simon was training, his contract had ended, he'd been injured. Harry had kept him on, Harry Redknapp as a player to let him train with the squad and Tim Sherwood, who was our development squad coach at the time, had said to me, look I think Simon's got a chance to make it in a career. So I'd just started. I said, "Okay, I'll let you have this one, Tim. We're going to sign him to a contract. Just this one. Yeah, we'll see. Credit to Tim. I mean, Tim had an amazing eye for talent. But we signed Simon to a one-year deal. When San Jose were a partner club of ours at the time, came over to train. He trained with them, and they quite liked him. So we ended up loaning him to San Jose. And what was interesting is we could have probably loaned him to Leighton Orient or the traditional route in England. But he went to San Jose. did very well for them. It just improved his game because, one, he was now playing in a league that's getting televised. So the perception was bigger because it's televised in a lot of countries now, MLS. He was doing media. So all of those things that you need to learn as a player. He was the big man on the team, so it was building him up. So we ended up selling him to Derby for a quite a decent sum of money that we never, ever would have got if we'd have loaned it to late the, It's the
0: one though effect.
1: Yeah, no, but it was, yeah, <laughs> could have been that, yeah. I was really surprised no one else was using mls as a place to place players when clearly it was working for us but the other thing that was interesting to me was having watched simon and following him the standard was getting better and my view was now i felt that you could sell to a younger player that the mls is a place to come to it's televised in over 170 countries in the world if you could put together a decent coach with a decent training facility you could say look this can be a stepping stone no different to the rest of the world i mean MLS has done a fantastic job. It's been brilliant the way that they've incrementally grown it. But I think one of the issues they've had is it's been almost like a little island of its own. It almost isolated itself from the rest of world football. And the point I made to Arthur right the very first time I met him is that every club is a selling club. Unless you're at the time Barcelona or Real Madrid, you're a selling club. But even Barcelona are a selling club now we've seen with Neymar. But the point is you've got to get used to that and you shouldn't be frightened of it this is how it works so my vision was we could take players that were younger invest in a transfer fee rather than dead wages on a player that was going to be retiring at the end of their contract and use that as a way to bring better talent in and my view is as MLS establishes that you're then going to be able to attract better players because more players are going to want to come if they feel it can be a stepping stone so for me it's a virtuous circle Yes, you're going to have to be prepared to lose some players. But the reality is, by proof of concept, you're going to bring better players in and be able to take the transfer fees and reinvest them. The Dortmund way. Yes. I think it was easier for me to have that view because I came from outside of it. I think it's easy to say, oh, well, everyone should have thought that. But it's different when you're in it and this is the way you always do things. It's sometimes difficult to change the model.
0: Why did you know you didn't need a big name? For marketing purposes alone, John Terry, available.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think we were in a privileged position because we'd got the fan base already that we had. So I spoke earlier, we had 10,000 on launch. By the time we had the name launch, we knew we were onto something big. You were liberated then. Yeah, so I think that helped us. I think with my focus and with Arthur's focus on a winning team from the start, with the fan base we had, we felt that we didn't need to go and do that marketing spend. Now, the quote I always used to give was, if it was between an Icelandic player and a Mexican player, and they're both the same level of ability, we'd probably take the Mexican because clearly you might as well get the benefits of that higher profile marketing effect. But if all things being equal, our aim was to be the best we could on the pitch. Knowing what MLS was like, we knew that it's a physical league, it's a dynamic league. We wanted it to be young, dynamic, and that meant having young, dynamic players.
0: I mean, one of the most remarkable sporting experiences I've had recently was. Hearing Theo Epstein talk about how he pieced together the Cubs team, specifically designed to win a World Series, you know, the different qualities he knew he needed. You and Carlos, and then Tata joining. What qualities, what elements were you looking to cover in your first ever Atlanta squad? Well, we spoke about
1: this fast and fluid style of play. Tito Vialba, we signed 18 months before. We kicked the ball way before tata martino joined us tito is a good example tito had played in the copa Libertadores final for san lorenzo a lightning quick winger young so for us that was a great first signing to set a pattern of what we were looking to try and do with our team but the other thing we were really aware of and this goes back to carlos's background in mls is it is a different league very different with time zones the difference in temperatures you could be playing Atlanta in the heat, and then we played in the coldest ever game against Minnesota, second game of our season. I remember you should always
0: play in those kind of conditions, yeah. <laughs> clearly. It was a
1: crazy game, but that was an example of the differences in MLS. So it was really important to us not only to have the younger designated players, but to complement them with some more senior MLS experience. Parker, Tyrone Mears. So you needed those MLS veterans because I could say to Tata, Carlos good to some extent. But when a park, he says, look, Gaffer, could we have this day off? Because the lads are knackered. And that experience was just as important. So I think we did a pretty good job of trying to get a, a squad that was balanced, both in technical ability, but also in terms of character.
0: Your DPs, I mean, you didn't go the Lampard, Perlo, David Villa route. You went for young South Americans, Argentine midfielder Hector Villalba, Paraguayan midfielder Miguel Almiron, and Venezuelan forward Joseph Martinez, none older than 23 when they arrived. A lot of MLS teams have tried to buy South American talent. It's very hard to get it right. How have you succeeded? What's the secret?
1: There is an element of luck in any transfer because you, know, you can never know with 100% certainty if a player is going to settle for cultural reasons, style of play reasons. I think what we tried to do was de-risk the process as much as we could. So everything from... We have Lucy Rushtons, who's our head of technical scouting. She came from Reading in the championship. So she is our data analyst who does all of the research. So we have an analytics department, which we set up 18 months before we kicked a ball. But also we went and talked and met with the players. So for me, it was really, really important that any player that we brought understood that we were going to be pioneers. They had to want to come because they knew that this was a new team. So that meant that they were going to have to be talking to the press, talking to the fans, being part of a story where they were creating history. But what they got back from it is they were going to be part of a club that was going to be going places and also was going to help them. If they did their job, it was a chance for them to move on in their career. But that needed a certain character type. And Miguel Almiron, I mean, you only need to know it by just looking at the kid. I mean, he is one of the best players I've ever worked with smile on his face regardless. I mean, the only time he didn't have a smile on his face was when he got the hamstring injury, which was a real shame recently, knowing that he had the big Paraguayan qualifiers coming up. Mm. So seeing Miggy crying was like seeing a child of yours crying, but he is happy, works his butt off in training, just a really good guy. But it was important that we met those players because we had to have the right players. We couldn't have a mercenary come in.
0: You've also invested considerably in the youth academy. How do you feel September the 7th When 17-year-old winger Andrew Carlton, the glory of Powder Springs, Georgia, local boy from your academy, came on to make his debut as an Atlanta United player against Houston. He's one of our own.
1: It's one of the proudest moments in the building of the club so far. So Andrew was our first ever homegrown signing. We made a big moment of that. So we persuaded Arthur Blank. He has a mobile office in his posh Mercedes van. Make him sound like the A-Team. Yeah, no, it's just like that. It's like an yeah. A-Team van, but, you know, black with the tinted windows. Oh, and he's Uncle got his Arthur. mobile office for those busy moments between the private airfield and the office. Amazing. <laughs> I bet you George Pepper is his driver. We got a GoPro put in. We picked Andrew up and we took him to a restaurant called the Varsity Restaurant, which is a famous chintzy fast food restaurant in Atlanta. But our fans were there, so we had about 150 of our fans to greet him. And we actually got him signing on a little desk and chair like you get in a high school. My point is that We were telling that story. The fans were there. They understood why it was a big moment. Then when he made his debut, it was literally one of the top three loudest cheers we've had this season with the fans singing he's one of our own when he came on the pitch. When Andrew does our social media, he's one of our top five players in terms of interest. So this local, homegrown 17-year-old lad is a star because the fans understand there's a narrative of... Any of us need some cheering up about the state of soccer in America. I came here two and a half years ago. I can't believe how good the level of youth football is at this stage, and it's only going to get better. Let's use Atlanta United as an example. We inherited the good work that had been done in the state of Georgia by the coaches and the clubs, but then we add on that a $60 million training facility A coach in Tata Martino who believes in the kids. We've already signed five homegrown players in 18 months that Mm. our academy has been going. We've got three players playing for the under-17 US national team at the moment, including Andrew Carlton. Two are playing for Honduras. So I'm telling you, it's not all doom and gloom. There are some great talented youngsters out there. And to be honest, it's only going to get better because now we're going to get them at 12 years old and be able to give them the facilities. It's totally free, so we're after the best talent possible. Lagos Conga, who played for the under-20 national team, was playing YMCA football two years ago. We brought him into what? our academy, and he's now playing for the under-20 national team. Oh. He's an Angolan refugee that came via Russia.
0: We've got to talk about your stadium. Step four, building a home. Your team open the season amidst the glorious shabby chic of the Bobby Dodd Stadium. And then September 10th, 2017, you open up at state-of-the-art Mercedes Benz Stadium against Dallas, and within six days, you had an MLS home attendance record 70,425, breaking the MLS mark set in the Rose Bowl by the LA Galaxy back in '96. Can you describe the emotions that you experienced pre game, walking out the tunnel onto that field, looking around from that office with nothing, empty desk? to 70,000 plus.
1: I think it was two moments this year that will always stand out. The first game at Bobby Dodd, because that was our first ever game. and We had about 50,000 at that game. But what was interesting about Bobby Dodd, and it's relevant to moving into Mercedes-Benz Stadium, was you spoke about shabby sheep, which is a nice way of putting it. But the bleachers were so poor that everyone stood for that first game. And that created an energy all of its own. And it was interesting, going to Mercedes-Benz Stadium, fans were almost saying, well, is it going to be as good as it was at Bobby Dodd? (laughs) <laughs> we're all thinking, <laughs> no. well, at 1.5... Mean, well, we've got tradition, yeah. we're losing all of our traditions. Yeah. You know, 1.5 billion bloody dollars, it better be good. Parallels where well, you know America's made it, it's like the Man
0: City fan who moans about, ah, oh, you
1: weren't at that nil-nil against Port Vale
0: when we were in Division 4. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> I, watched, I watched them play Grimsby Town, but I did, I love that about your move. It was. We had Atlanta United fans bemoaning just the lack of tradition for the club. How many games did you play at Bobby Dodd? Nine. Nine.
1: <laughs> Forgetting who they are. Yeah, no. I mean, the new stadium is just ridiculous. But what's really amazing about it is, and credit to Arthur Blank and the team before even I joined, they looked at it as being a soccer and American football stadium. So we have retractable seats that allows us to have a full-size pitch, which suits our style of play, which is important. We have our own side of the stadium, so we're not using the visiting NFL locker room as our locker room. One side's Atlanta United, one side's the Falcons. We have these curtains that drop down when we go for a 42,000 capacity that are branded Atlanta you United. you are going to
0: say for a field goal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so when you come in the stadium, it feels and looks different from the Falcons. That's exactly what Tottenham Hotspur are doing with their new gaff. But here's the stat I love from that date. That game was the fourth-best attended soccer match in the world, just behind Bayern Munich against Mites in the Bundesliga and Spurs against Swansea City. It's remarkable, truly, yeah. truly remarkable. But there's two scenarios now for Atlanta. Sustained success on one hand, Atlanta thrasher evaporation of initial enthusiasm, you know, when everyone sniffed mm-hmm. out the new dog at the dog run and gotten used to it. The thrashers sold out tons of games in their first two seasons. I think they were among the lead leaders, but then they faltered. The fan base disappeared before they knew it. Bloody hell, they are in Winnipeg. Does that make you afraid?
1: No, it doesn't, and What I quite like about it is it gives us another challenge for our fans to meet. I mean, we've heard about Atlanta being a fickle sports city, and clearly that's nonsense. So we sold out that record crowd against Orlando And now we're going to beat that. We already announced we beat it because we know we've sold the tickets already. But we're going to have over 71,000 for our game against Toronto last game of the season. So this is something where the level of interest is there. We've managed to have seven games in 23 days at home because our schedule was backloaded because of delays to Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Our fans are turning out on Wednesday nights, consecutive midweeks, packing it to the rafters. The fan base is there and it's only going to get bigger. What's important is having that success on the field as well. And again, if we look at the thrashers, they weren't able to do that. We've made the playoffs in our first year. I'm expecting us to make the playoffs next year and the year after that, because in my view, it's actually easier year two, year three. The first year is the hardest. 28 players bringing them together. It should get easier for us because we're established. Our academy is going to start to take root. We should be looking to be perennial playoff contenders. And I think that's a factor that's going to help us keep that sustainability but I quite like the idea that we've still got these challenges to meet because my aim and what we want to do as a club is eventually have it where we're opening the stadium for every game we want to have 70,000 week in week out that's got to be the aim for us and it's got to be aim for MLS. What's your playoff goal now? Clearly we'd like to go on a run as far as we can the only thing though I would say on playoffs is we might have one playing game and someone gets sent off in the first minute and your season could be over and I think what's really important is. Whatever happens now, this has been a phenomenally successful season and we'll celebrate it. And I don't want it to be a case where there's great wailing and gnashing of teeth because we don't win our first playoff game. I think what's been really impressive is at the moment we've got the fourth best ever all-time goal differential in the history of the league. So to be a brand new team and to have scored the goals we have and to play the entertaining football we have is exciting. The playoffs are a bit of a crapshoot. Fingers crossed we'll have a good run, but if we don't, it's not the end of the world.
0: So your first season leads to your first off-season. High fives, celebration, mission accomplished. What are the strategic challenges you feel you now face, real challenges? I mean, no puffery. Mm -hmm. What are the things now that are keeping you awake? The reality is we've always got to improve
1: the squad, it will always be the same, every transfer window you're looking to try and get a better squad together and there'll be some tough choices because these players have done a remarkable job, they've been part of history creating a first ever Atlanta United team but there'll be tough decisions and there'll always be tough decisions particularly in a salary cap environment where you're going to have to either lose someone to the expansion draft if LAFC were to take a player or you need to trade a player out because you need to create the cap room to bring someone else in. So there'll be some tough personnel decisions. Off the field, as much as I've said, I'm very optimistic about the Atlanta fan base and what we're creating. We can never take it for granted. And it's vitally important that we don't just think we've found the solution and then take our fans for granted. The real focus is going to be making sure everyone in the organisation understands
0: that we've only just started the journey. More keg stands. Rumours abound. Big European teams are looking at your talent. Arsenal linked to a $28 million bid for Almiron. Real Madrid linked to a hundred million dollar bid for Brad Guzan. Huge numbers. Do you have to hold on to these players? We're
1: in a great position
0: because all of our players are on long-term contracts. So
1: we're in the driving seat in that respect. Also, we're building a club. We've had fantastic crowds and we want to be successful. We're in a position where we don't need to move unless someone's gonna just absolutely knock our socks off. And that's where you always want to be. But likewise, we're not afraid to move on our talent if it's the right opportunity and we'll replenish it. So for me, we're in a great position where we can just sit back, we can enjoy the team we've got. We can know that at some stage there will be transfers because that is the nature of soccer. We're part of that global chain now. You know
0: exactly your place in the food chain.
1: Yes, and look, one day we're gonna hope that MLS is gonna be that top division where we don't need to sell players or those players aren't gonna want to go on to a Real Madrid or a Barcelona, but we're not there yet. So if it's right for Atlanta United, right for the player, right for MLS, then we all consider offers, but we don't have to.
0: In the same way as you once sold Gareth Bale. It's the nature of the beast. You're always
1: going to have those clubs that are bigger, that are ultimately going to be able to play a crazy fee that makes it the right move for the club, for the player. But until that time, we're not in a situation where we're in financial peril. Quite the opposite, in fact. We've got an owner and a president that wants to win on the pitch. And in a salary cap type environment, It's not like if we sell a player, we can spread it out amongst another five players. So it's got to be just a knock-your-socks-off type
0: offer for us to even consider it. Such a remarkable achievement. Your team, your fan base, the results, the stadium culture, your high-octane coffee. (laughs) Looking back, though, on all of it, very strategic. But what was one lesson, one surprise, one thing that you did not see coming that happened and that you learned from the most? I think the thing I learned
1: from the most, uh, certainly for me, was the name leak of atlanta united we had spent a lot of time talking to our fans a lot of time talking around the subject and atlanta united was the right choice for the fans for the reasons of atlanta but when the name got leaked there was a lot of negative press and i think that fed into because it's just a placeholder of a footballing name yeah and we spoke at the time about that the whole point was united was specific for atlanta and it has different meanings for different cities but for the diversity of Atlanta, for the fact that Atlanta's a transport hub. For all of those reasons, it resonated with our fans. And also because we wanted to create a culture. We didn't want to just impose a false narrative. But that's very difficult to say in the heat of the moment. And I was really down for a 24, 48-hour period where I felt like... Till the next keg stand. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) till the name launch. But, I mean, what's interesting now is we've probably had a six-month period where every article about Atlanta United was, they've signed this player, that's quite good, but the name's... Pretty ropey. What's funny now is absolutely no one talks about it anymore. It's been a roaring success. I mean, our merchandise, for example, is 25% of all MLS merchandise is Atlanta United. One in four. One in four items sold on MLS.com is from Atlanta United. But again, if I go back to it, and I think it was a great lesson for me from a business and a life perspective in that. You've got to have your plan and you got to stick to it and actually do that and go down swinging. At least if you go down, you go down on your terms rather than just the vagaries of social media or whatever everyone thinks you should do. And we kept a path. And I'll never forget Arthur, who was incredibly supportive. He said, look, we know it's right for our fans. You know, the truth will out in effect. And that's what we've seen. So I think that was a great learning experience. It's for also me.
0: great to give people something to moan about to draw their fire. Directed at the name, not everything else that we're building. Although I do think with Tata, you could have considered Atlanta Old Boys. I think that would have been truly, truly a fantastic name. And new MLS franchises, there's one for free for you. It leads to the closing. Run in here for me. You're now established. You're a thing. You're selling merch. A lot of merch. Atlanta Falcons, Georgia football, enormous in Atlanta. You've got the Braves, the Hawks. Where are you now? in the Atlanta hierarchy?
1: We're not as big obviously as uh, Falcons or University of Georgia football in terms of strength of numbers but what I think we are are Atlanta's team and the way I look at it and the way I describe it is I've come to Atlanta when England are playing I'm almost more of an England fan now as an expat because it's like a badge of honour from where I'm from and I think in Atlanta people have moved there from a lot of different places and if you're from Chicago you're a Bulls or a Cubs fan but you're proud of Atlanta it's an amazing city it's a vibrant dynamic city and Atlanta United gave an outlet for people of Atlanta to say that's my team in terms of actual buy-in I think Atlanta United is Atlanta's team and the reason for that is people can have their guilty little secret if it's the Green Bay Packers or the Pittsburgh Steelers they can have that team from their past but then when they talk about the city they live in now that they've raised kids in that they love Atlanta United's their team.
0: A new team for a newcomer to a new city, where would you like to be in five years in that hierarchy, though? truthfully? And the Atlanta Falcons guys are not listening to this podcast.
1: Yeah, I always have to be careful. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I think, you know, if we could keep the trajectory we're on now, we'd be up there as one of the biggest clubs in the city. I think the exciting thing about soccer in America is we're doing things in our city, but it's the whole country as well. It's getting bigger and bigger and that's where we can position ourselves as one of the top clubs in MLS as the league grows, then default you're getting to be one of those bigger clubs in the world and that's our ultimate aim
0: especially when you do the unthinkable in modern atlanta sports history and build an atlanta team that actually wins i've got to ask you what about you in that five year span will you go back to the premier league if daniel levy steps down in say five years and spurs came to you
1: i love it in atlanta so i've got two twin boys that were born there two and a half years ago so they're american so. I'm getting emotional that they're going to miss a World Cup without their team playing in, just like when I was a lad in England, and it wasn't until 82 and I was 10 years old that we actually made a World Cup, so I can sense the pain they're going to go through. I love Atlanta. Atlanta is an amazing city. I love soccer in America. I really feel that we're on the cusp of something incredible here. I mean, I know it's been devastating with the World Cup at a national level, and I feel a little bit conflicted because... If you come to Atlanta, what's happening with Atlanta? I know the national team's important, but I'm telling you, MLS is just going from strength to strength. We're going to have over 71,000 against Toronto for a match. It's going to be, hopefully, given the games that are going on that weekend, it might be the third biggest game in the world. And this is America. The passion, the energy, the excitement is something that is incredible. And to be part of that and to be building something, you know, I can't see myself going anywhere else.
0: Oh, Darren Hill's like 2 chains, Chipper Jones and Miss Thang you yeah, proper Atlanta now. Uh, a sentiment that was sent to us over and over again uh, when word got out you were coming here at RK, Luton Ware said, just hug him, just hug Darren. Tell him how much we Atlantans love and appreciate his work. It's been a while since we could believe here.
1: That's what makes this job, I don't even think of it as a job, but that's what makes it so special. And look, Rod, you know this because you've been in England, but... How soccer clubs become the heart of the community and to see Atlanta United, to see the flags all around the city, to see how much it means, to see the pitch that we put in the first ever pitch inside a train station that's in downtown that we have kids playing on that couldn't play before. That's what makes the job and the role so exciting. And we get guilty of hyperbole not making the World Cup, but soccer can make such a difference to people's lives. I just love the fact that what we're doing is creating excitement and fun for people in a world that needs it. Oh,
0: A-T-L. Oh, Godspeed to you, Darren Eales, and your beautiful club. It has been amazing to watch you go about your business, to build a delirious culture out of nothing in the face of all those who doubted you. For those of us who love the game of football and its growth in America, you are light in the darkness right now. What you've achieved with Atlanta, win or lose in the playoffs... I just raise my Guinness to you and I say to more, to more, to more. Thank you, Darren. Cheers, Rog. Thanks.